Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined as ever by my co-host Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, uh, in some ways I thought when we were going to record this edition of the podcast it would be the same as ever. This has always been a kind of remotely organized conversation, but this one feels a little bit different nonetheless, right? It's quarantine, it's self-isolation, there are kids nearby who might make an appearance, so we'll see. Yeah, I there's there's a strong probability that there will be some squealing from my kids on this recording <laughs> one way or another. Um, uh, but nice to see you, Harvey. Um, and we are joined. We're very uh, happy to be joined for this edition of the podcast by Miriam Felton Dansky of Bard College. Um, Miriam is joining us from New York. Miriam, nice to see you. Welcome to On Tap. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Listeners, we expect Sarah Bay Jung to join in at some point during the recording. On this edition of the podcast, uh, uh, in in lieu of our typical news roundup, I just wanted to give um, for listeners and for people who may be listening to this podcast um, uh, further into the future, a rundown of where we are now um, with this pandemic. Um, As of the recording, it's been about a month since uh, Sarah and Harvey and I recorded our last edition at the Courier at the Conference for Research on Choreographic Interfaces at Brown. Um, That weekend in early March was when the University of Washington canceled all of their class meetings and universities began announcing measures such as bans on gatherings of greater than 100 people. Since that time, the most virulent pandemic um, since the 1918 super flu has utterly transformed life in the developed world. Besides China, Italy, Spain, and um, the United States have really been badly hit, um, though the impact has been great uh, globally. At this moment, um, between 90,000 and 100,000 fatalities have been uh, confirmed and attributed to this virus worldwide, and with that number going up sharply every day. Um, The worst per capita death rates have been in large Western European nations, Italy, Spain in particular, France, the UK. Um, But the United States at this moment is recording the highest absolute number of fatalities um, so far, and that number is climbing. Nearly every college in the United States and untold others across the world have elected not to resume on-campus classes after their spring breaks. Um, Theaters are dark. Professional sports, concerts, movie theaters are all shut down. Um, The United States is under a patchwork of stay-at-home, shelter-in-place, curfew, and lockdown orders. Um, New York City and its suburbs are by far the hardest hit part of the country from this virus. Uh, Broadway has been dark since March 12th when um, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered Broadway theaters to close and they will re they will remain closed until June at the earliest. Practically every performing arts organization in the country and indeed uh, across the globe, um, uh, certainly in the in the developed world, is closed. And most of our listeners will be in their third or fourth week of partial or complete isolation at home. So in this edition of the podcast, we have three directly or indirectly uh, linked um, uh, topics, uh, all of which have something to do with COVID-19, though the third topic is really um, uh, kind of quirky in that regard. Um, we're, we're really excited to have Miriam with us for our first segment in which we're going to talk about theater's immediate responses to this pandemic in terms of what organizations and artists have done and are doing in response to these um, unprecedented circumstances. So while productions have been closed and theaters are closed, but some productions have been streamed, many organizations and artists are putting previously paywalled recordings online for free. And um, uh, Professor, Professor Felton Dansky is going to talk to us um, about what she's seeing in New York um, related to this strange new world. Um, second, uh, Sarah Harvey and I are planning to share our own uh 
COVID-19 stories from the higher education institutional perspective? How are universities, arts programs, and theater and performance studies uh, departments reacting? And what may be in store for next year? Uh, We'll talk about that, though obviously very little is known at this point about what's going to happen beyond the summer. And finally, and this is really indirectly related, uh, for some quarantine comfort Watching uh, Harvey, Sarah, and I uh, rewatched, or in one case, watched for the first time the indispensable 1996 Christopher Guest mockumentary "Waiting for Guffman." Um, does it hold up? Is it recommended quarantine watching? We will answer that question. Um, Sarah, uh, our our co-host, has joined the stream. Sarah, how's it going? Well, you know, clearly we I'm, need to uh, unmute Sarah. Oh shoot. Oh no! So we that can is see the classic, uh, <laughs> right? Um, uh, unmute. Yes. Uh, well, clearly, you know, uh, I'm I'm in a totally different time zone schedule than <laughs> so it's already been something of an issue. But thanks for waiting. Here I am. No. No, of course. Well, we didn't wait. <laughs> we went ahead and recorded um, in the hope that you would join us, and, and we're and we're glad that you're here. Um, we we were commenting in the intro that this, on the one hand, the podcast has always been a remote recorded thing. We're very comfortable with the shift to Zoom, but we could all we could already tell that this one was going to be different. It's unforeseen circumstances and unprecedented unprecedented circumstances across the board. But Sarah, uh, we're super glad you're you're able to join. Yes, my apologies uh, for being late. No problem. Um, so we'll start off with that first segment, uh, artists and audiences in confinement. Um, again, we're, we're very happy to, to welcome Miriam Felton Dansky. She's assistant professor of theater and performance at Bard College. She is author of um, the uh, curiously um, appropriately titled Viral Performance, Contagious Theaters from Modernism to the Digital Age. Very that, timely. Very, very timely. Yeah, Timely, but of course, a, a, a concept of virality that is metaphorical um, and, and and not literal in in that work. Um, a fabulous book published by Northwestern University Press in 2018. She's also an accomplished theater critic, having reviewed downtown theater um, for the Village Voice uh, when it was still a print publication, and and many other um, publications for many years. So, Miriam, welcome again to On Tap. Thank you so much. So as I as I mentioned, we wanted to look at what artists and producing organizations are doing and have done in this moment. There's all sorts of things that we're seeing. Um, theaters announcing seasons for next year with dates TBA, um, new spectatorial conditions, um, and also a, a time of real uncertainty and, and hardship for artists. So there's a lot to keep on top of. We're curious to know what your perspective is, Miriam. So what, what have you seen in the last weeks that you think is noteworthy about how the theater industry is responding to this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I should say that my perspective is New York-centric. I'm not actually in the city. Um, I'm upstate in the Hudson Valley near Bard. Um, But most of my theater world is based around New York. So that is the perspective primarily that um, I'll be speaking from. Um, So I think there are kind of four things to think about, um, or at least there are four things I've been thinking about. One is what are theaters and artists putting online, because that's the only place right now that um, is really possible to share work. So what what work is being shared and um, what kind of artistic and um, and community solidarity um, can we take from that and our artists finding in that? Um, the second uh, is um, what is the impact on arts institutions, arts organizations, individual artists? Um, the third is what kinds of relief are being offered? So already we've seen um, lots of different um, organizations trying to step into the gap and offer artists and arts organizations some form of um, crisis relief. So there's that's kind of three dimensions of what's happening. And then I think the fourth that's really important to think about, although it's a little bit more abstract, is um, what should happen after this, um, it's no surprise to, I'm guessing, to any listener um, that theater has always been financially completely unsustainable and living as an artist in the United States has always been um, nearly financially impossible. Um, so how how could we, without, um, you know, with how could we think about what kind of world we could build after this? Um, so 
I'll start with the first, and um, I know that all three of you have been looking at various different kinds of performance online. Um, so I'm just going to mention um, a couple of things um, that have been interesting for me to look at. Um, and I'll also say that um, I, I want to acknowledge that um, many listeners and many people who aren't listeners um, also don't have the ability to be audiences right now um, and just acknowledge that. Um, I'm as I mentioned to a panel before we started, I'm five weeks from the end of my semester and I'm a single parent of a two-year-old. Um, so uh, there's, there's, I'm watching online theater in four minute increments um, <laughs> and many listeners may or may not be in situations that are um, better or worse or just really different and everyone's responses are really different. Um, I wanted to mention um, one initiative called The Trickle Up, um, which is a, a New York-based platform that is a subscription platform. It's $10 a month um, and it was started by um, Taylor Mack, Nigel Smith, um, Morgan Janess, and um, about 50 other artists. Um, and uh, what they're doing is contributing very short segments of either new work or footage um, and and uh, you can pay $10 a month. You can have access to this platform. It's available all the time, so it's not streaming um, at a specific time. And that $10 a month um, is used to create a fund um, that gives $10,000 grants to individual artists. Um, and the grant makers are those artists who are contributing the artistic material for the platform. Um, and so I have looked at that a little bit. I listened to Susan Laurie Park's uh, play a song on the guitar that she wrote. It was really beautiful. Um, I watched Taylor Mack read uh, uh, the opening, the prologue from um, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, uh, just sitting alone in a park because that's what we can do right now. Um, and I actually found that very moving um, just to see Taylor holding a copy of the play and reading from it. Um, and so I think that because there's a framework around that that is solidarity with other artists um, and uh, the knowledge that it is going to help artists um, make make it through this time in some way. Um, I, I really see a lot of value there. Um, I also have looked at a couple of um, archival productions. Um, the New York City Players, uh, which is also a New York City-based company, Richard Maxwell, um, the playwright and director, um, has been leading that company for a long time. Um, I went online and I looked at uh, a little bit of The End of Reality, a 2006 production. Um, and I, again, found it really beautiful to see uh, because that is very different. And again, I think when we're talking about um, all theater being online, just knowing that it's online doesn't really tell us anything about it anymore. Um, and so an ar archival footage of a play that happened in a theater with a live audience is extremely different from something that is produced for the current circumstance, right? So we're talking about very, very different things, but um, it was really beautiful to see that 2006 audience responding in real time to a play that I'm familiar with, um, but that I haven't checked in with in 12 years. Um, so I looked at that. Uh, and then I'll also just say that um, theaters are finding various ways to continue um, with productions that they had planned to be staging live right now So um, and are finding ways to, to try to use that to support artists as well. So um, Baltimore Center Stage, which is um, an institution that I'm a big fan of, um, has a production of Where We Stand by Donette L. Lavinia Grays. And I have a, a ticket for the um, 2 p.m. Um, streaming performance this Saturday. Uh, hopefully my son will be napping and we'll see how much um, of that I can actually see. Um, but they are doing pay what you can at various different levels, uh, sort of ticket buying levels. Um, and I know that um, regardless of how much of the production I'm able to see, um, I'm helping that institution of those artists um, by participating. Um, so that's a little bit about what I've been seeing. Do others want to jump in before before I could talk about some of those other topics? But um, should we stop and, and talk about what well, others have been seeing? That's a great list. I, I, I would say that, um, yeah, Sarah uh, via Twitter has been putting out a lot of information about some of the streaming offerings that are out there. On Sarah's recommendation, I watched um, Tim Crouch's solo show, I Malvolio. That was just an example of a great treat that, you know, there's a lot of things like this, which are things that, I might not have known about or certainly wouldn't have had the chance to just watch um, 
a, a high quality recording of online and now it's available. That's nice. So, um, yeah, I don't know, Sarah, are there other things that you want to plug in, in the vein of, um, uh, special online offerings in the time of pandemic? Well, for, for some of us who have been living, uh, more remotely. So when I was in Buffalo and, and certainly when I was in Maine, um, and I'll I just say like Buffalo is not remote. Well, <laughs> true. <laughs> True. As a proud uh, Buffalonian. <laughs> well, uh, f- f- fair enough. Um, the offerings in and through Buffalo are not, um, were not as varied as, as, as I was seeking at one point. Um, and also I was there when my kids were, I was there for 10 years. So it, it overlapped a period when they were quite young and I had no money. So, um, so all of which is to say that for, you know, if you don't have the money to get to a theater, everywhere is remote. And so uh, back then I began watching a lot of things uh, through um, subscription services and other kinds of um, offerings. So, so in some ways, like my theater going has always been kind of augmented by being able to watch digital performances, um, especially of things that don't tour very much or don't get the same kind of play. So, you know, on the boards um, uh, has been, .tv has been a real resource for me for a long time in terms of making things available, both to my students who wouldn't get to see it otherwise, but also when I couldn't travel to see weird work, either downtown New York or, you know, on the West Coast and things like that. Um, so I kind of go back to, to on the boards. I'm delighted to see them getting a lot of attention. Um, it's a it's a paper service that feeds back into a physical theater, and I think their recordings are actually quite quite good. Um, so I've been watching a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, Robert Wilson recently released his video portraits, um, which I haven't been able to see live, but I kind of like, you know, I find them very meditative. If, you know, for everybody who remembers when Einstein on the Beach started streaming, you know, and I think for, it was only up for, I think, a couple of months, maybe a little bit longer when the when the show was actually physically touring. And, um, and I would always have like a window of Einstein, like in the background of whatever I was working on. I found, you know, I find Wilson's work very meditative in that way. So those are, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of great, great stuff out there. Um, I'm also really interested in the people now who are starting to make work for this moment. So um, uh, Aaron Mee has a New York based company called This Is Not a Theater Company, and they did a, a uh, they have a new production that's they're calling for theater stairs um, as opposed to theater goers. And it's it's plays uh, audio plays produced uh, for people stuck at home. So last last night I, I attended a play in your bathtub and, um, you know, you get an instruction about, you know, filling your bathtub and the props that you're going to use. And then, you know, you have an audio, uh, you know, a real time audio stream that you log into and, and it kind of takes you through a, a physical and embodied you know, if not collective experience. So I've been in, I've been enjoying a lot of those, right? What have you guys been watching, Harvey panel? I mean, I've primarily been watching, uh, just again, thinking about, I've primarily been watching, you know, thinking about uh, just the fact that, you know, there are young people in my household, you know, who, you know, want to watch Octonauts and SpongeBob. Uh, so I've, I've been sort of trending that way. So, so when I engage theater, it's been primarily actually looking at more viral things, right? So looking at the at-home series, whether it's uh, the sort of the uh, pop-up John Krasinski Hamilton with Lin-Manuel Miranda and the original cast, you know, or the BSO has a great series. It's like hashtag BSO at home where you get profiles of individual artists. What I like about that structure is that, and I think this is true in general for theater, that the focus upon the solo performer resonates and if you look at sort of the economics of regional theaters like audiences have said that they don't really like solo performance as much um you know that usually a two-person three-person performance um in terms of cast size uh, tends to resonate more more um, successfully with regional theater audiences uh, but i think the solo performance is actually standing out quite strongly now and just one more thing i'll add is i think that this is a good moment where those multi-camera shoots of live performances national theater live broadcast broadway hd uh sort of slickly produced professionally edited you know meant to be seen on screen but live performance in a mediated format is coming alive hmm. this has been a great um 
great list of different types of offerings that are available now. I think I wanted to maybe direct the conversation a little bit into the, um, I don't know, some of the other points that Miriam mentioned, um, and I'll bring up this sort of polarizing uh, essay that was published on Medium by, uh, by way of that transition. So um, listeners may have seen this essay, The Forgotten Art of Assembly, by an author who identifies himself as Nicholas Berger, though I think that may be a nom de plume. I'm, I'm not sure um, who, who that is. Um, the reason I bring it up is in connection to one of the points you made, Miriam, which is you know what should happen after this. There's a part of this essay which is sort of wide ranging and um, a bit of a polemic, but also a sort of commentary on the conditions of theater making. There's a part of the essay that says, you know, it's ridiculous that artists should live this close to the line budgetarily, that, you know, that that if one show closes, if one paycheck disappears, that all of a sudden you're, um, you know, in, in desperate financial circumstances. That's something I imagine all of us would agree on, that artists should be better paid. Um, it's it's hard to imagine coming out of this situation. Although, actually, that's not true. Like, you, you've seen some weird things coming out of the political discourse now. I'll say as a quick aside that Josh Howley, the junior senator from Missouri, the one who beat Claire McCaskill, went on the record yesterday saying that the federal government should immediately start paying 80% of every worker's wage up to the median uh, income of the United States. This is a conservative Republican who is proposing a massive uh, UBI to try to deal with this crisis. So it's conceivable that you would actually see revolutionary circumstances coming out of this. But let me just say that beyond what should happen with artists next, um, the the essay is basically a polemic on against the impulse to keep creating and keep producing for this moment. Um, and I'll say it's polarizing. I, I know that it has created some generated some opprobrium on Twitter, but I've also seen it shared sympathetically by um, actor, you know, friends of mine who are actors in New York saying, yeah, do we really need these one minute play festivals? What is this sense that we have that we need to keep generating theater even when we're all in our own houses? Can't we just stop and wait for those spaces to open up again? On the one hand, I can see that this is a, I can sympathize with that notion, right? Like, should we critically evaluate, should artists critically evaluate their own impulse to just keep generating stuff as though that will solve the problem or that, that, you know, he 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 identifies this notion that perhaps people are all sitting in their houses yearning for new works um, workshopped through Zoom. Perhaps that's an examine a notion that should be examined. On the other hand, it's hard for me to be mad at people trying to keep their creative activity going um, for whatever reason, for whoever wants to watch it. So I, I thought I would just mention that essay. I'm not sure if you guys have had a chance to read it or if you've heard other reactions to it, but it's interesting for this moment. Yeah, I mean, I uh, the those first parts of the essay panel that you mentioned um, did resonate with me, um, and I have um, a little bit more info that I can share in terms of the impact, the financial impact um, on artists and arts organizations. Um, about the essay, you know, I, f I found a lot of the essay pretty tendentious. Um, the, the forgotten art of assembly, which is its title, um, implies that we have forgotten how to assemble. I, I don't think that we have. I think we're just not allowed to do it. Um, and so, you know, uh, there are a few other aspects of it that are like that. I think that, um, as I was saying before, I actually think some of the work that's available online is very beautiful. And I also think that although um, the author makes some reference to do we really need that dusty archival um, footage of a, a production from 20 years ago, my answer as a, um, as a theater scholar who focuses on contemporary work is, yes, we do need it. And actually, we always needed it. And um, thank goodness this much archival material is available now, but it should be available always. And we need some kind of economic structure that allows artists and companies to make it available to us um, so that we can watch it and write about it. Um, so so that's my response to those things. Um, I did want to mention a couple of New York-specific things. So an organization called um, New Yorkers for Arts and Culture has compiled a few um, what they're calling impact surveys um, that 
try to do some statistical work assessing what the economic impact of this crisis has been on both arts organizations and individual artists. Um, and again, this is New York centric, um, but I'm happy to share the link so that if listeners want to go and look, take a look at those surveys, um, you can. And there are also these surveys were mostly conducted in mid to late March. Um, so they're already out of date and they will be further out of date by the time the podcast airs, but they give you some, some sort of general sense of what's happening. Um, so I'll just quote a couple of things um, and then there's there's plenty more to look at. Um, but in uh, Brooklyn Arts Council survey, 72% um, of responding artists, and I believe there are about 80 um, respondents said they needed assistance with mortgage or rent. 63% um, said that they had lost work that was unrelated to their artistic practices. So meaning um, it's not just that people are losing their artistic gigs, but the day jobs or whatever other kinds of gigs were supporting them um, have cut hours or closed or furloughed. Um, and so people are not able to pay their rent in that way. Um, more than half of the respondents reported their income range as being between 20,000 and 44,999, and nearly another quarter reported their income as um, 20,000 or less. Um, so that's that's just a little bit about those are that relates to individual artists. Um, Art New York's impact survey, um, which again was conducted in mid March, um, projected um, it's it has about 420 member companies and they're mostly small theater organizations um, losing a combined total of 46 million dollars by mid April, and that represents both revenue from ticket sales, but also canceled fundraising events and all kinds of other. Um, other ways in which the um, catastrophe is affecting arts organizations. Um, and then that number jumps to, again, this is an estimate, 140 million by the end of June. Um, Another organization that I connected with that I wanted to mention, um, just to give a sense of um, that there is both a really large scale and then there are organizations that are operating at a really small scale. Um, so I emailed with Randy Berry, who's the head of the New York Indie Theater Fund, um, where individual artists can just go fill out a Google form um, and apply for assistance. And um, Randy mentioned that the applications are for really basic things like food, rent, and medicine. Um, she mentioned that the situation is um, impacting artists of color and immigrant artists in the deepest way. Um, and many of them don't have access, um, many of the artists who are applying don't have access to government relief or um, great technology, which is increasingly necessary in this moment. Um, when I emailed with her, this was two days ago, she said she had 545 applications um, and had been able to fund 125 um, so far. Um, and then the, the last thing I wanted to mention that's a little bit um, maybe less obvious has to do with insurance. Um, a lot of small arts organizations purchase small business insurance, um, which includes a business interruption insurance to help with just such a crisis. Um, however, many insurance companies following the SARS epidemic included uh, what's called a virus exclusion, meaning that this particular situation does not count. Um, and so I did want to mention that I also um, talked with Alec Duffy, who's a co-artist, founder and co-artistic director of Jack, which is a small experimental theater space in Brooklyn. Um, and they had successfully lobbied um, their assembly member, Robert Carroll, who um, Duffy told me is also a former theater guy. Um, to um, introduce legislation eliminating the virus exclusion in business interruption insurance. Um, and this is something that uh, many kinds of businesses, including small theaters, have been paying into for years and years to try to sustain themselves in just such a situation um, and that now is not coming through because of this um, specific loophole that insurance companies have. Um, so hopefully that legislation will pass and that would have a huge impact on a lot of kinds of small businesses and small nonprofits, including theaters. Wow. Well, thank you for all of that information, Miriam. That's um, really fantastic. And, and listeners should look up the um, campaigns and, and um, you know, the, the programs that enable artists who need um, financial relief uh, to apply for it. I also I wanted to mention um, one other thing, especially if I'm sure there are no artists 
who have not heard about this, um, but on the large end of the funding spectrum, um, I'm sure people are aware that just a couple of days ago, this organization, artistrelief.org, um, launched, which is a combination of um, funds from Andrew W. Mellon Foundation um, and Creative Capital and MAP Fund and FCA and a number of other big funders and individual artists can apply for $5,000 grants. Um, and it's um, so overwhelmed that when I went to the website this morning, it said their application is down due to overwhelming volume um, and people might need to apply a couple of times. Um, but so there's there is a huge scale in terms of um, a huge spectrum, rather, in terms of the scale of funding from the Indie Theater Fund, which is giving out really small grants on a really rolling short term basis to um, some of the biggest funders in the country um, banding together to to um, try to help artists. That's fantastic. Really, that's that's information that I, I know a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear. So, um Miriam, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for for making the time and, for and sharing me. your perspectives with us. Of course, of course. And, and I'm sure we'll want to have you on again sometime soon. Okay, thanks. Uh, good luck with the rest of the podcast. <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> so we wanted to not just talk about how arts institutions are reacting to the pandemic, but also um, talk a little bit about what we're seeing in higher education. Uh, Sarah Harvey and I work at three different um, research institutions in relatively large cities. We don't have a great diversity of institutional perspectives to report on, but nonetheless, um, we wanted to look at some questions and, and phenomena that have come out of this. Um, I'll just mention a few types of things, and then Harvey, I'll ask you to respond to any part of this you want from the BU perspective or from the greater you know, uh, theater and higher education perspective. We've seen the cancellation of a lot of shows and the ends of a lot of seasons, a lot of student work that um, was just suddenly interrupted and some interesting ideas about ways to salvage that or acknowledge that work. Um, along with the rest of higher education, all of our colleagues in different fields, we are now teaching online. Um, there have been, I think, some interesting developments already in terms of what I've heard from faculty about what it's like to teach a studio class through Zoom, dance, or theater. Um, and then there's the big question, which is what is coming in the fall? Um, what are institutions looking at for options for how to um, continue their operations, continue to um, fulfill the missions of research and education, even as we know this pandemic is going to continue um, through 2020 and into next year? So Harvey, um, what has been on your mind? What kind of conversations have you been having? What are you noticing? A lot of the conversations in the last couple of weeks really have have uh, been reactive to uh, COVID nineteen, to you know, federal and state um, advisories slash restrictions on the number of people you can have within a within a room. Um, you know, so I think that and, and and that perspective is something that many of us have been sort of dealing with right now. It's just like you know, how do you sort of rapidly move a class? To a remote teaching uh, scenario, you know, what do you do with events that we're going to have more than fifty people or more than a hundred people, more than even ten people attend, and that's cuts across the board for all of our live events that exist within theater. Uh, you know, how do we forecast for the summer summer programs? And I've spent the last week or so just unwinding and unraveling plans that were made over the course of the past year for the summer. Now, looking toward the fall. The big uncertainty, the big question is, when will people feel uh, they can safely gather, uh, you know, without there being six feet separating them, right? So, so when can you enter a space such as an auditorium and sit shoulder to shoulder and watch a show or a performance? When will states and women governments allow theaters to reopen? And that's the big question. I know from talking to casting directors, casting directors are already sort of working toward the next season. You know, so there there is a light, you know, at the end of this tunnel, but for universities in which we're um, um, looking at sort of announcing fall seasons and fall opportunities, like there's just a huge question mark that we're all wrestling with and trying to figure out right now. Do you get this? One of the features of this that I think has been interesting is that uh, it seemed as though the governments, even on the state level, but certainly the federal government response was lagging behind the reactions of universities before I heard anything about um, stay at home orders or curfews. Um, big uh, universities were canceling classes. So do you get the sense that the universities are interested in when will the state allow us to return to to life as normal? Or are they saying, 
do we need we need to make our own decision and think about what's um, possible and best given our community? It just seems from from the U.S. perspective, at least, and and admittedly, I'm, I'm based in Massachusetts. So it's a very Massachusetts grounded perspective as well. You know, there is a question of whether or not accurate information will flow quickly from the federal government. Uh, and you can see just across the U.S. on this day how different states are responding in wildly varying ways to COVID. You know, and because of that, it's universities in conversation with the state government and also looking at sort of in-house specialists as well as state-level specialists, you know, sort of uh, epidemiologists and people who specialize in disease spread, you know, to make their best guess because in a different scenario, maybe a parallel universe, you know, the government might actually, the federal government might might take the lead. And I think we've looked at other countries, um, Canada, the UK, Spain, you know, as examples of China, most definitely, as, as places that have, uh, at a federal level, sort of led the path. But, you know, from a state perspective, that isn't happening thus far, at least within Massachusetts, in terms of the, the relationship with information and the flow from the government. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Well, my sense is that in the United States also, it really varied depending on institution. So like big private uh, universities with large endowments, I think, acted very quickly, and um, you know, and 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 frankly, big big private institutions that are well resourced have a certain amount of autonomy, right? They can do things. Um, I don't think we saw the same thing from big public institutions uh, across the U.S. Um, Canada is a little bit different, in part because. Um, we're, you know, here we're we're primarily public institutions, um, and there's a pretty tight relationship between um, higher education, post-secondary education, and um, and the government. And so uh, there are already very robust kind of connections there. Um, our institutions are also on a different calendar, so um, and it's the same. So, for example, when when this really hit most of the, you know, there are some exceptions, but most of the Canadian institutions, certainly here in Ontario, were all basically at the same point, And we were all about three weeks away from the end of our term. So um, yes, we had to get creative very quickly. It certainly disrupted end of the year recitals, performances. I mean, our, you know, our, our big, you know, main stage theater show got exactly one dress rehearsal, right? Full dress rehearsal. And then you know, recorded with a back of house camera, you know, but but what was kind of beautiful in that moment, this was a Elizabeth Rex for our fourth year undergrads and and it um, and directed by one of our, of our alumni. Um, it, it streamed and we had like over 300 people watching it in, you know, watching the live stream on YouTube, including parents who would not otherwise have been able and families who would not have otherwise been able to see the performance. So there was something really beautiful in that. I watched it online and, and really loved it. But, um, you know, but there was definitely a lot of loss. But we were at a de- very different kind of moment. Um, you know, we've now concluded classes and are, you know, finishing up finals. Uh, we are preparing for summer uh, to be entirely online. Um, but there's, there's just a lot more coordination. Um, it's also, you know, uh, as an American recently moved to Canada, I'm actually also quite shocked by the um, public support, right? So it's like things look very different when you have, uh, uh, you know, national health care. Things look very different um, in some ways. I mean, the response from our funding agencies, the Canada Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Toronto Arts Council have responded very quickly and and in significant ways. I think there's a real awareness that we have to keep, especially our smaller companies, you know, that have more niche markets going. I've been talking to, you know, various, uh, you know, companies and some of our alumni who run or are involved with companies, and it's just it's it it feels, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of stress. And and look, I mean, part of the issue is that both, I would say, in the higher ed sector and in the arts um, there, but also in the arts more broadly, 
there was already financial instability and insecurity and precarity. You know, like even for companies that were that were doing okay, the profit margins or the you know revenue margins were very very slim. Um, people were already overextended, and so I I do really worry about how this is going to transform not only what we produce but also the. Uh, the venues and the resources that are available coming out of it. And I really hope that that organizations uh, and and federal governments, uh, you know, kind of follow Germany's lead and do a kind of WPA style of, you know, m massive investment to keep to keep higher ed and the arts going, because I actually feel like we fall a little bit in the cracks here, right? There's like a lot of attention to the arts and there's a lot of attention uh, to higher ed, but it's like arts and, and higher ed, you know, intersect. And I, I worry that we're going to be in, in a kind of gap. That's a good um, point. In, when people pay attention to that. Yeah. I'm interested in the, the sort of online um, education part of that. I'll just say that it, we're far from having any conclusions. I'll say as the chair of a theater and dance department that I've been pleasantly surprised by how faculty and students have jumped into this with a sense of we're going to do it. We're going to make the most of this. You could imagine um, faculty and students saying that, you know, I didn't sign on for studying, taking a ballet class through my computer in my parents' living room, but we're just going to do it. Um, and actually some interesting things I, I've heard colleagues say, I had assumed that from our, in terms of our acting classes, that a lot of assignments would be converted to just monologues, right? That, that it would be impossible to do a six-person scene or a three-person scene satisfactorily on, on Zoom. And then I'm actually hearing from some colleagues that the students are really enjoying working on, a, working on scene work with two or three people. When the, when the connection is stable, when you can see and hear each other, um, you can actually get good scene work done through dialogue. And that in fact, the intensive social connection that participating in a scene requires is something that the students are finding gratifying, even in this strange time. Um, and my my dance colleagues are pointing out that the you know even though they have to work with their students about you know do you have a large enough space to move? Do you have downstairs neighbors who are going to complain if you jump on the on the floor? Um, there's all sorts of tricky stuff about it, but that the that learning how to move intentionally and live in your body in a situation in which it's very difficult to do so is something that the students are finding gratifying now. So I find that encouraging. However, it's very hard to imagine students, if, if say online instruction were going to continue through fall semester, if there were gonna be some modified way of resuming instruction, it's hard to imagine students signing up for acting classes and dance classes knowing that it would be a semester of this type of activity. Maybe we could be surprised. Um, and so that's well, part I just, of the reason. I, I do oh, want to yeah, like just ahead. jump in real quick and say I think it's important that we make a distinction between online education and high-quality e-learning offerings, right, which are their own kind of thing versus what we saw in this, which is emerg emergency conversion of courses. Um, or to steal a phrase from uh, Robin Bernstein, pants optional uh, education and meetings, right? <laughs> that, that this is not really like, like I do think, I do think it is possible to do really interesting, you know, well-produced, you know, high quality e-learning online offerings, even of, of studio courses. That's different than this. This was an emergency, you know, pivot. So I think, uh, and 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 just to say the other thing is I think you know one of the questions is who has internet access right We're, you know aside from like space considerations which are huge it's like also you know um, and especially if we're looking at uh, you know at, at really challenging economic circumstances for a lot of families I mean this is what really worries me uh, oh for sure well I guess who's going to get to participate in this kind of environment certainly I, I guess the 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 thing that I was pointing towards was even imagining the best possible preparation for taking curriculum in acting, directing, dance, and saying, we're going to make the, rather than an emergency improvised transition, we're going to create the best acting one class we can imagine to be offered through the internet. I just don't know what kind of student demand there will be for that, especially if the students are thinking, you know, 
this is something that I might dip my toes into, or this is something I might take later when I'm on campus. Are people going to come back for classes like that? Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, questions that we don't know the answer to collectively. Uh, and that's, you know, like how are students feeling uh, and faculty as well and staff in this moment? So uh, when there's not a vaccine for COVID, you know, would a person want to uh, defer admission, for example, uh, into a program, you know, for a year until they feel like a year later there will be a vaccine perhaps? Um, you know, do you sign up for class knowing that there's a chance that it might be entirely remote um, offered rather than in person or might become remotely offered midway through the course. And then there's also the question of if it's in person, then how does social distancing expectations built up over the last few months uh, inform interpersonal dynamics in the in the classroom? And, and those are things that we're going to spend all summer thinking through. Absolutely. Um, Harvey, I know that you have to go pretty soon. Why don't we say goodbye now? Thank you for offering your, your voice and your time to the podcast once again. Good luck with the rest of your meetings. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dash off to go to some meetings. But first, I want to say, you know, waiting for Guffman. It was my first time seeing it. It was, it was pretty magical, quite amazing. I loved that. And <laughs> so a huge thanks to uh, Sarah and panel for uh, recommending um, this overdue viewing experience for me and then and then joining in a live co-viewing experience you know made possible through zoom which is Absolutely. not a, which is not a sponsor of the podcast just yet <laughs> it does it doesn't need to be it's doing fine uh thank you so much harvey great to see you bye harvey yeah, so um, Harvey, in a way, served up the perfect segue to our last um, segment. Um, Sarah, Harvey, and I decided that we would simultaneously watch Waiting for Guffman. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, it, it feels like a COVID-inspired um, topic just because I think we chose this activity as a bit of... Uh, you know, cultural comfort food, um, something that we could enjoy um, remotely. And and for, for Sarah and I, it was um, re-watching an old favorite. For Harvey, it was a brand new experience. Um, so Sarah, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to know your experience. You have seen the movie before. Um, for me, I had seen it, you know, shortly after it um, uh, was released in the mid-90s, 1996. It was a different experience watching it after many years and different watching it um, linked over Zoom with friends and colleagues. But uh, I'm curious to know what, what the experience was like for you. And oh, and by the way, it was your birthday. You chose to do this on your birthday with us, which we were grateful for. It was. This, that, was, my, that, was that was how I compelled um, all of my co-isolators um, to 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 watch it with me, although they they opted not to be on uh, on 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 our kind of co zoom as we were watching it. Um, so I've I mean I really love waiting for Guffman. I think parts of it hold up better than others. I don't I don't necessarily think it's Christopher Guest's best uh, of those um, those style of movies. I mean I still remain very partial to This Is Spinal Tap and um, and Best in Show, but I I but I think Waiting for Guffman is totally charming. Um, my own associations with it are, are also rather peculiar because when it came out, uh, I was in the first uh, and only year of an MFA directing program in a small town in the Midwest. And, and at the end of that academic year before I uh, left to go to the University of Michigan, I was directing a community theater production of uh, the musical They're Playing Our Song. And so I felt like like I and my co-community theater people doing a musical in the Midwest simultaneously. And, and we all went to see Waiting for Guffman when it when it came out. So we did this, you know, it was, and, and so there's something about having actually been in a very similar experience. I will also say as like a, you know, we sort of uh, mentioned this the other night, but the kind of queer uh, subtext, uh, non-text of Waiting for Guffman um, was also something that I felt very strongly, right, as a kind of, you know, out visibly queer person, you know, moving to to the middle of um, of Indiana. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, kind of like that kind of fish out of water and the way that that gets negotiated in space, I think it was really familiar. So I anyway, I, I, I still love this film. I think it's a great I think it's a great movie. 
Yeah, it was a pleasure to watch. I mean, for me, the the unique perspective of it perhaps was living in Missouri. And so, you know, Waiting for Government is set in the fictional town of Blaine, Missouri. Um, and it's about as, you know, it's it's the selection of that uh, uh geography from the pers- you know the point of view of LA or, or New York it's like the you know the most provincial the most in the wilderness um, there's a real kind of uh, Nikolai Gogol kind of you know satire of deeply provincial life and from a perspective that's kind of mean um, so you, you can feel the <laughs> you can feel the satire um, really really poking you and in fact there's a there's a town about an hour south of your called St. Genevieve that's known for its um, colonial era French architecture because this era was settled early on um, uh, by by French by French traders. Um, so you can go to St. Genevieve, see some of this like 17th century French architecture, but also there's a museum and there are features of the museum that's in, Blaine, um, I almost called it Blaine, in St. Genevieve that make me think it might've been the actual inspiration for Blaine because there is a lot that is made about, you know, a sort of, pageant in the 1930s when the president came to Blaine on, you know, um, and there's also this meteorite there in glass. There's this sort of watermelon sized um, meteorite that fell to earth not far from there, you know, decades ago. And that's also one of the most significant things that's ever happened. Right. Well, Saint, you have the whole alien, you know, yes. number. Yes. Which I had totally forgotten. Like oh, that, yeah. that whole, I like the whole UFO yeah. was, that was like brand new for me. I had completely forgotten that part of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it does, you know, it's the, the, the talent in that piece. It's, you know, Christopher Guest, of course, but Eugene Levy, who co-wrote the script, Fred Willard, Canadian. Catherine O'Hara. Yeah. And Catherine O'Hara. Catherine Canadian. Um, um, yeah, who also, you know, star of Schitt's Creek, which is wrapping up. Um, uh, so just, you know, amazing uh, performer talent in it. The There's the kind of casual homophobia of the way that Corky St. Clair is depicted. And it's not my place to sort of make excuses for it. But there's something about, I think that aspect of it kind of doesn't age terribly well, because you are given permission to laugh at him for his for being closeted for being gay he's ridiculous for a variety of reasons and christopher guest really makes the choice to lean into the you know the the features of his sexuality as part of this you know joke about him um except there's okay the only thing i would say is as, as as someone who identifies as gay i mean i do think that i see that and and i think that was true even in in 1996 97 but Except for the fact that everybody gets kind of mocked and taken over there, right? So, like, you know, uh, the there are a couple of heterosexual couples that also get kind of, you know, get get given the same kind of treatment, and so it's, and 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 one could say that it's also like uh, as a, I mean, I think there's one way of reading it in which it is incredibly prejudiced, and um, and perhaps, you know, demeaning of small town Midwestern life, right? And of what it means to be in a small town. And 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 I think that's a really fair critique uh, of the film, right? That it's incredibly kind of, you know, big city kind of provincial in that sense. But except that I think all of these caricatures are held with, uh, with a certain amount of love. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like they're, they're clearly caricatures. They're clearly... Um, you know these kind of broad strokes jokes, but but there's there's also like a real um, notion of them and and these identities and these people being real treasures, um, almost in the same way that if you know the film, the final scene of of Corky's um, very idiosyncratic um, theater paraphernalia memorabilia collection that he creates a store out of, right? Like the you know the waiting for Andre or dinner with Andre action figures, right? The sort of ironically non-action figures and the what was on the lunchbox? Oh, oh remains, remains of the day, day lunchboxes, right? <laughs> and <Kids> so, <laughs> I, I, it's which is brilliant, right? I mean, and yeah, and so I just feel like you know, so many of us have those kinds of idiosyncratic, like m- memorabilia, and and it and and uh, I don't know if memorabilia is a word, but you know. 
these kinds of collections that I felt like there's there's enough there that that I think one can identify with across the board that I in the same way like Spinal Tap like at the you know at the end of the day like yes it's a it's a mockumentary and the emphasis is on the mocking of it but it's a but it's mocking from a place of deep knowledge mm-hmm. and yeah. um and I feel like deep affinity and and affection and so for me that that offsets what I think you know, could be taken as a kind of, uh, you know, homophobic joking. Absolutely. I think, I think it would be, I'm, I'm, I agree with you that I think it would be a mistake to reduce the portrayal of Corky Sinclair as, as just a crude homophobic joke. There's so, there's, it's, it's so soaked in pathos and not just him, but everyone, you know, the, the, the dentist in a small town who thinks he's actually got you know, comic and musical talent when it when quite the opposite is true. The the young woman, Parker Posey's character, Libby Mae Brown, who works at Dairy Queen and whose life aspirations involve generating some sort of low fat blizzard. You know, it's 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 the it's it's great satire because it is mean and and goes for the weakest parts of the characters and as you say is also so deeply perceptive of human nature and of these types that there's a an unmistakable tone of of love that that goes with it um and and compared to spinal tap i I was thinking about the different mockumentaries there's spinal tap there's a mighty wind there's best in show i maybe this is true maybe it's not but they're all you could argue that they're all about sort of subcultures right so that it's it's lampooning the peculiarities of these subcultures and people who take these ridiculous activities extremely seriously but for spinal tap and waiting for guffman it it sort of is about show business and it seems to be about in those two movies it's about the kind of incredible self-delusion of people who take show business extremely seriously you know the the sort of uh, and I guess Best in Show is ostensibly show business as well and, and, mm-hmm. and a mighty wind. But there seems to be something distinct about Spinal Tap and Waiting for Guffman in the in the delusions of the characters, the way they do not recognize um, their uh, the, the, the impossibility, the futility of their efforts um, or the particular types of psychological warping that can happen in show business. Though for Spinal Tap, it's about what happens with success, with people being taken seriously when they shouldn't really be taken seriously. On the other hand, it's for Guffman, it's people who are desperate to be taken seriously and have no chance of being taken seriously. I, I, I think I think it's really interesting to look at those two in 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 parallel, right? The this is Spinal Tap and, and Waiting for Guffman, especially because those were, um, you know, those are much earlier than than Mighty Wind and, and Best in Show, which even just in their kind of production values look very different and and have a very different kind of feel to them um and we're neglecting i'll say for your consideration Um, okay fair enough yes yeah yeah yeah, no no but that's always the one that i forget as well um uh but go on oh no but i just but i would also say that that what's interesting so there are two kind of larger frameworks like one is also looking at the representation of, of theater on film like when when do film directors and films take up theater either as a kind of uh, ancillary activity, right? Like Pedro Almodovar loves putting shows in his films, right? So there's always like these bits of theater. Sometimes they're real shows, sometimes they're not, or, you know, they're based on real plays. Um, but uh, but also thinking about um, when theater becomes the focus or performance becomes the, the focus of a film and the way it kind of... Uh, you know, metatheatrical, metacinematically kind of reflects what it means to be a performer back through the lens of theater on on screen. And I think that's also a really interesting kind of dimension. There's also a sense in which Christopher Guest, like his work with a rep, rep company, right? So we see these same people playing very different roles in these kind of similar style of productions, um, which I think is also part of the fun of watching multiple versions or you know multiple films in the in the canon i guess um well it was a real pleasure to watch it with with you and harvey um online earlier um best quarantine birthday ever 
<laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. Glad we could be a part of it. Um, we should we should draw things to a close, and and we um, uh, Harvey had to say goodbye, um, but we we would also like to make some space for our drafts, um, the the incomplete thoughts or or questions that um, have been on our minds recently. Um, I'll begin, um, and this is just you know it's one of a few stray thoughts that have been kicking around in my head precisely in the moment of adapting to these circumstances. Um, and I and I'm not usually one to take seriously the idea that um, new technology is going to sort of solve problems or greatly enhance our life. I think we actually tend to put too much uh, faith in technological invention and innovation to get us out of problems that require other types of solutions. However, in this moment of enforced isolation, um, of needing to communicate through uh, digital means, I've really been craving a kind of souped up version of the Zoom chat interface. And it's the Zoom chat interface is great. If you have a laptop or even a desktop, um, the, the laptop makes it portable. You can have this conversation wherever you'd like to as long as you have good internet and power and, and all those, those resources available. But I've been imagining like, a high for a big format high def version of this like a you know like a 4k big monitor and a well-lit little cabin or studio where when you're having these you know cocktail dates with your friends in other cities or your your work meetings if you could see the image of your counterpart larger higher def if you could read body language if you could feel more because of the scale and lighting like you were in the same room, I would imagine that existing technology could really enhance this. And you would you'd need you know big monitors, uh, powerful cameras, and and really good broadband to make it happen. But I'm wondering if we're not going to see some sort of um, enhanced sonography and communication techniques for this, um, just to make the the conversations we're having, which can be very pleasurable, um, more satisfying, uh, just by virtue of having larger images, um, higher definition in the conversation. So I'm wondering if we'll start to see products like that coming out. So uh, funny you should say that. I, I, I expect we will. And, and actually, I would, I would mention um, a Spiderweb show, uh, which has a new project um, called, um, uh, it's Canadian Studio, but it's CDN Studio, um, is Canada's first virtual rehearsal hall, right? And this is um, created by Sarah um, Sarah Garten Stanley, um, who's been doing a lot of work around uh, sustainable sustainable theater production and sustainability in in, in production design, um, along with a colleague of mine, Ian Garrett, who you may remember from uh, from our our Circe podcast. And um, and one of the things that Sarah's been working on is is how to create real-time distributed, right? How do we reduce the carbon footprint of theater production, both in how it's produced, but also just in terms of like all the travel around. And so in thinking about questions of sustainability and theater, uh, she and Spiderweb Show and and now um, CDN Stage, um, or CDN Studio, which you can find it at cdnstudio.ca. and uh, spider web show is just like it sounds spider web show all one word dot ca um, and those uh, as a way of putting multiple people in the same room and so in some ways like we have cam- really high definition cameras I think increasingly we're going to see a lot of more production with you know things like iPhones and um, you know portable cameras and things like that so um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this certainly I think things are going to change. Um, there's no question. We're not going to go back to what what we had before when when this all hit. Uh, what changes? How much it changes? What is it? Is it you know a replacement for things? Is it simply um, additional? Um, I think there's going to be a lot of craving for close contact when that feels safe again. Um, but but what forms that take, how audience expectations, how spectatorship expectations change. I mean, I think all of this is going to be, you know, really profoundly affected. And it'll be interesting to see how it all kind of uh, plays out. Um, uh, my draft is that, uh, you know, I've been really enjoying a lot of um, new work 
And, and I just want to kind of give a, a hat tip and kudos shout out to all of the companies, um, a little bit contradictory to the Nicholas Berger um, piece, who are, you know, trying to keep uh, something of what they're working on alive. So I, this past week, also attended a, a, a real-time uh, online play reading of a new play by um, Canadian playwright David Yee, um, produced by uh, Factory Theatre, which is, you know, a, 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 a small Canada-focused um, uh, but really interesting, very diverse, um, has done a lot of really interesting, important work with uh, artists of color um, across Canada here in Toronto. And, uh, and Nina Lee Aquino is the artistic director there, and, and, um, and she's worked with David on a, on a couple of other pieces. And so um, just getting to hear actors doing new work, I thought was really invigorating. Um, it was in uh, Soul Pepper also here in Toronto has a Fresh Ink series and they've been doing that online, um, uh, which I think is is also really engaging and and kind of wonderful. And so, you know, and I think it's I actually, again, in contradictory to the burger, I think it's really important. I think it's I think it's important that we remind people of of what theater looks like. I think it's important that we remind people of what um, of what the labor of theater looks like. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for audiences to have access to and to understand how things get made. And, you know, I, I, I think there's there's something really wonderful in these works in progress that um, that you don't find in the kind of slickly produced templates of you know net Netflix shows, which you know I also really enjoy. So like you know I mean I'm pretty uh, you know agnostic in in my choice of of offerings, but I think I think it's going to be really important. And, and actually, I think people are going to be really tired of certain formulaic uh, formulaic kind of offerings. Uh, by the time we're all released back into community again. And so I, I really, I actually think there might be a real opportunity if we can kind of sustain artists and companies and projects now, right, in these really dark times, that we're going to want experimental, innovative, different voices, different languages, different perspectives um, that aren't aren't available um, in what has already been kind of recorded um, and is circulating. And so I, I do look forward to that. I also am, you know, perhaps this is the optimist in me. I'm also kind of optimistic that um, that the availability of, you know, work like the New York City Players and Richard Maxwell's work, like the Worcester Group, is going to introduce a bunch of people, like the stuff at ontheboards.tv, is going to introduce audiences to work that they wouldn't necessarily seek out if they had to, pay for a babysitter and, you know, travel and, you know, pay whatever cost it is for a li- you know, a ticket production that they might be able to and interested in sampling a wider variety now. Um, and that might actually cultivate a, a, a more diverse appetites when, again, when we kind of go back into the, the world after COVID. So I, I don't know, yeah. just my thoughts. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it'll be really interesting to see what's going on a year from now when um, hopefully, uh, probably much of regular social life and economic activity will be happening again, though in a different format. What the the artistic company, what, what the artists have done in the meantime with the existing infrastructure that allows for remote viewing and communication. I think some really interesting and good stuff will come out of that too. Um, Sarah, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure um, uh, as it is always. Thank you um, to Harvey who had to sign off earlier. And of course, thank you to Miriam Felton Dansky for her contributions earlier in the recording. Uh, ONTAP listeners will have another podcast for you in about a month. And just in the meantime, I hope everyone is uh, staying healthy, staying safe. And, um, and you know, and I, I think I speak for all of us when we say, like, you know, on behalf of the, the podcast, we really, our hearts go out to everybody who's struggling uh, through this really hard time, whether that's financial, um, uh, social, uh, you know, mental health, I know, is a big, a big issue right now. And, and also, you know, uh, for folks who are dealing with medical uh, crises and emergencies. So, you know, we're really we're thinking of the whole community right now. 
On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.